0: And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode eight of The Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com podcast. If you enjoyed the show, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds and give us a rating in iTunes.
1: Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. You can sign up for a free 14-day trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer.
0: So before we get to today's main interview, uh, we wanted to bring Lawyerist contributor Gina Cho on to chat with us about a discussion she's been following about humanizing law schools and her recent Huffington Post article about humanizing lawyers.
2: Hi, Gina. Hi, Sam. How are you?
0: I'm
1: doing really well, thanks. So, uh, tell us what uh, what about humanizing law schools and lawyers? How did this come about?
2: Uh, So, it's actually an initiative out of Florida State University, and they are trying to make law school education um, focus more around health and well being and career satisfaction.
1: And this is a thing that needs to be discussed. Lawyers, Uh, law students, and lawyers should be happy people, right?
2: Yes, apparently so. And there's a whole sort of debate going on in law school, um, between law professors, sort of between the old guards that say, you know, if we start teaching these kids and coddling them too much and give up on the Socratic method, they're going to turn out to be you know, weak, and they'll never survive out in the quote-unquote real world. And then there's sort of the newer professor that says, no, we should be actually teaching them practical skills, and we should be talking about things like emotional intelligence and maintaining our well-being and so forth.
0: How are these things mutually exclusive?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I, I would agree with you that they are not mutually exclusive. I mean,
1: I'm kind of so with the old guard here because I think the Socratic method is a really useful way to teach legal reasoning and argument. And I think that coddling law students risks uh, raising bad lawyers who can't deal with the pressures and stresses of being, being lawyers. Now, I think there's probably a middle ground here, but, but I don't necessarily think those are bad things.
0: But isn't like a whole bunch of the stress of law school about the structure of exams and the competitiveness of admissions and all of these things more than just the pedagogy of Socratic method?
1: Yeah, but my stress level didn't go down once I graduated. It went up. So,
2: you know, I think there's sort of a larger picture here. It's that law school is this sort of artificially created pressure cooker And it's not even so much about the education system, but sort of the mentality that the law schools have. So I don't know if either one of you guys had had this happen to you. But I remember when I was at 1L, I went to a library to, to pull a book to finish an assignment. And the pages that I needed for the book had been ripped out of the law school book. And this is a very common thing that's happened for lots of my colleagues and friends. So it's, You know, I think it's changing that mentality, right? It's like, what are the rules in which we are allowed to play in? And what are some of the boundaries that we are not going to cross? You know, it's really like an ethical and civility issue.
1: So you also wrote an article recently uh, for the Huffington Post called Stop Training Lawyers to Be Jerks, which has gotten quite a lot of traction. I think that message resonates with lawyers and non-lawyers. And I am kind of wondering, you know, can we draw a line between the on inhuman law schools and jerky lawyers, do you think?
2: Yes, I think training law students to be jerky law students, tra- then they go on to become jerky lawyers. I
0: mean, it's quite certain that whoever cut the pages out of that book turned out to be a terrible person.
2: <laughs> I, I, I would think so, yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, what really surprised me was that it wasn't an isolated incident, it happened multiple times. And when I talked to other lawyers, it's happened to them. And um, so, you know, it just seems like there has to be some rules and boundaries. And I think a lot of state bars are actually struggling with this issue about bringing civility um, into or back into the law profession.
1: So the objection that almost always comes up here is being a lawyer is all about the client and anything that's good for the client is what you need to do. And so there isn't a whole lot of room for being touchy feely and nice in there, Right.
2: Well, but isn't being, as you put it, touchy feely and nice? Couldn't that benefit the clients?
1: I sure, and and I. But the way I've heard, I hear the argument always is, okay, if touchy feely is what benefits the client, fine, do that. But sometimes that's not what benefits the client. But are you
0: under Sam? Are you under the impression that there's a single lawyer out there whose default is being a jerk, but who, when the client needs it, can be really soft and warm and gentle? Uh, Like, do these people really exist? Is this really a skill that people just turn on and off? I definitely
1: know lawyers who are able to do what the occasion demands and who are able to be jerks when they need to be jerks and who are able to be nice and collegial when it's time to be nice and collegial. I think, though, that's not really what you're looking for. I know a lot more lawyers who are just jerks. Right. Or who are just nice all the time. I don't know a lot of lawyers who, you know, code switch, basically.
2: Right. So I think it's all about cultivating a lot of tools in your toolbox and not having the only instrument in your toolbox be a hammer.
1: That makes a lot of sense to me. I'm a big fan of the toolbox metaphor <laughs> for, for, for alternative, for billing, for, um, for approaches to litigation or, or lawyering strategy. That makes a lot of sense to me.
2: Yeah, and it doesn't make any sense to have the hammer be the only tool in your toolbox. And, but yet you're expected to do these precision, like surgery, for example, right? Like you're expected to do brain surgery with a hammer. And when things don't go your way, you're like, oh, like, why didn't that work? Well, it's because you're using the wrong instrument. Like there are times where you need to be, right, like, you know, coddling the client or being really soft with them or becoming more compassionate. And there are, I think, times where you should be assertive. Um, I think there's a difference between being assertive and zealously advocating for your client and being a jerk. Right. But that's probably a conversation for another day.
1: <laughs> so if I can sum it up, I think we all agree that I like the toolbox metaphor and everybody should put down the hammer sometimes and, and pay a little bit of attention to the other tools. Exactly. Thanks so much, Gina.
2: Thank you.
0: All right. That was excellent. Uh, We'll include links to some of those things in the show notes on lawyerist.com.
1: For today's interview, I'm talking to Aaron Hall, who has begun offering a satisfaction guarantee to some of his clients. Here's the interview. I am here with Aaron Hall. Aaron Hall is a Minnesota lawyer. He does primarily business law, I believe. But as is my tradition now on this podcast, I'm going to let Aaron give his own bio uh, because I've always hated it when people give bios about me and start talking about my my diploma and things like that that really aren't all that interesting or relevant. So Aaron, um, take it away. Tell us about yourself.
3: Sure. I grew up in the Twin Cities area. I've been practicing law since 2007. Currently we have nine attorneys. And, our, uh, and four administrative staff. Our firm is designed around a target market, which is a little bit unique. Many law firms are designed around practice areas that the attorneys have an interest in. But we've said, all right, we are going to focus on one target market, which is small to mid-sized companies, not big uh, publicly held companies, not necessarily startups, but we do work with some of those. And the idea is to truly understand our clients, which are growing, healthy, established companies, and how to deliver more value to them. So that means practice areas include intellectual property, employment law, contracts and corporate work, litigation, and then a couple others that business owners need, like real estate and estate planning.
1: So you're a full-service small firm?
3: Right. Two business attorney or two businesses, we seek to provide full services for their company.
1: Cool. And it it sounds like, uh, because this is relevant to our discussion today, you're looking to have very long-term relationships with your clients, right?
3: Exactly. And it should be pointed out, we are different from the big firms who are also full service because we don't have 150 experts in various niches. We have the most common areas needed. We don't have a national footprint. We focus on keeping our overhead efficient, so our price point can be effective for our mid-sized clients.
1: And then do you, I assume you farm out or contract with other lawyers to do work that, do you just refer or do you contract with other lawyers when you need to fill in a gap in, in your expertise?
3: Primarily, we refer to people who we have an established relationship with, like a patent attorney, FDA attorney, IPO attorney, something like that.
1: Okay. So I, we're, we're talking today because you are doing something... Uh, God, I hate using the word innovative, but I, I am going to use it because I, I think it's it's kind of innovative. Uh, which is that you're offering a satisfaction guarantee to some of your clients, and so I I want to talk about exactly what that means. But first, I guess I'm curious to know where that idea come from. You know, what's the reason you're doing it, and how did you how did you come to that decision?
3: I've seen in various law firms where I've worked. A frustration with clients over the bills, and in fact, even in our firm, sometimes clients are surprised by a charge. They say, "Oh, I, I thought we were off the clock when we were having that phone call," or "Oh, you charge me for this." And uh, although our representation agreement says we're entitled to charge for those things, and we thought we were very, being very clear, I grew concerned that with our very valuable clients we would encounter a situation where they might leave us just like they left another firm. So here's this uh, story. Friend of mine bought a company with 50 employees, plans to grow to 100, and I went out there and met with him this first time. Now I asked him, why are you leaving your other attorney? And he said, well, I grew frustrated over the bills and I wasn't getting the attention I felt I should get. It was a big firm and it just didn't feel like the right fit for us. I said, did you ever talk with your attorney about those concerns? He said, no, that'd be awkward. I don't, you know, I'm not going to argue with an attorney. That's the last thing I want to try to do. And I thought to myself, the last thing I want is for this guy to have that same experience with somebody on our team, not say anything about it, and just quietly move on to another law firm. We had to establish a way to easily allow clients to limit their bill so it aligns with their expectation and that also keeps us accountable as attorneys to make sure we are frequently communicating, setting expectations early, and explaining in the itemized invoice exactly what we're doing and why. So for example, it's not enough in an invoice just to say, um, we researched this subject, but you should say we researched this subject in preparation for this memorandum of law. So they see how our work connects to the value we're delivering to them.
1: You know, it's interesting that you uh, you talk about it in this way, uh, about uh, clients just sort of leaving quietly, because I I recently suggested that solo and smalls aren't providing the value to their clients that they think they are. They're not quite as sticky as they think they are um, in the face of new innovative approaches to law practice. And And there's all kinds of, you know... Oh, I mean, yes, I am. And uh, my clients only ever say good things about me and we have great relationships. But, uh, but I, you know, when I, when I was actively practicing, I begged for negative feedback because you don't get it. And you become like this sort of echo chamber where you think you're great because nobody's telling you that you that you're not. Um, I, I think trying to solve that problem and recognizing that you might not be as great as you think you are is is, is a pretty good, pretty wise approach, huh?
3: Yeah, you know, there's a perception among attorneys that they know the company so well that there would be high transfer costs if the company moved to another attorney. Right, and that's so total the, BS. Yeah, and in fact, there are firms like ours who say, we'll come to your location, we'll tour your building, we'll meet your staff, we'll talk through issues, we'll go through checklists, all of that's off the clock because we're not going to charge you to get to know you. So... When companies realize that, or when attorneys realize that that kind of threat is out there with competitors, I think you're right. They should be more sensitive to that issue.
1: It's interesting, I, you know, transfer costs. Like, I've been with the same bank for at least a decade now just because of the pain in the butt of transferring it. <laughs> right. But, but I, I can imagine that moving from one lawyer to another is nowhere near as difficult as that. So.
3: Yeah, I think it's a lot. It's building trust. And so the question is... Is that trust already built? Yeah. And in many cases, you're getting a referral, so the trust is transferring from that initial referral source to the attorney. So it doesn't take much time.
1: So, uh, so the goal is here that if you if you give them a chance to edit their bill, and and you you're, you tell them we're not even going to question it, I assume, um, then they're going to be happier and and stick around, and probably they're going to be happy with their bill. And it also gives you the incentive to be more persuasive with your bill,
3: right? And let's think about just raw costs here. Let's say a client over a decade is spending five grand per year, so that's fifty thousand dollars. It's not that big a deal if a thousand dollar bill even got marked down to zero. Now, let's let's assume that there are going to be some clients who will take advantage of this. And let's assume that they are discounting every bill by 90%. Well, in that case, you just have a conversation with them and say, you know what, I don't think this is working. Right. You're, um, you know, thanks, but if you want to keep working with us, um, you know, we need to understand what is it that would deliver value. Um, and I'll tell you, there are some clients that we don't give this to. I think it's very important to note certain practice areas this wouldn't work well in. It's essentially any practice area where there's not an ongoing relationship over time. So let's say criminal law uh, or family law. Family law is a terrible one. You might have an
1: ongoing relationship in criminal law. (laughs)
3: Right. (laughs) So I guess the question is, do you trust them to be fair to you? And in most practice areas that are transactional, so it's a one-time transaction, a bankruptcy, a divorce, uh, or something like that, I would be very hesitant to do this. Um, Also, I would be hesitant to do it in practice areas where clients um, are constantly frustrated. That is criminal law, family law, bankruptcy, litigation too. Uh, I'm concerned about how this will work in litigation with our clients. We are going to do it, but I know that litigation is so frustrating for clients that they're looking for somebody to blame. They know they're unhappy. And we don't want to become that target. That said, we are going to try it with, our, uh, with those clients with whom we have a great relationship. You know, and you we'll may, see how it goes.
1: You may be surprised. I, I, I know that um, uh, we had a lawyer, another lawyer from the Twin Cities, Alex Bajwa, who is a family lawyer or was a family lawyer. I guess I'm not. I think he's still practicing. Um, and for, uh, for a month, he uh, sent all of his clients a pay-what-you-like bill. Wow. Um and I and I believe he did not suggest the price. He just gave them a blank line and said, "Pay me what you think that that what I give, did for you this month is worth." And um he said he he did most of them did not give him 100% of his expectation, but um he learned a lot and he had follow-up conversations. The requirement is you have to explain to me why you're paying me what you're paying me. Um, and he, he got an enormous amount of valuable information. Most of them paid him around seventy to eighty percent of his expectation, and um, and he you know he he said it was just a really valuable learning experience, and I I, I think that tends to be right. May, maybe the result is that he thinks his rates were too high, um, or that he's not providing value uh, in a in a way that is tangible to the clients, whatever. But you know, so you you may end up being surprised by what you get out of it.
3: Um, you raise an interesting point that. He asked for feedback from the clients. I think that's really valuable. When we're not getting paid dollars, we do want to know why. Now, we're not going to question it. We won't argue with them. They have Mm -hmm. unilateral control and power over that invoice. However, we would ask that they state what was the reason that they reduced the bill. Were they frustrated about something? Did we fail to articulate it? Whatever. And we're not going to argue with them, but I think that feedback is very valuable to help avoid the misunderstandings about value in the future and make sure that it is a win-win relationship.
1: So so let's, I, I, maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because I we haven't really talked about what is actually the guarantee and how does it work? How do clients find out about it? How do you talk to them about it? And, and what do you actually say? What are the terms, I guess?
3: Sure. Initially, we sent an email to each of the clients and said, we want to have your relationship for decades. It's important to align our legal work behind your business goals and make sure that what we're doing aligns with your expectations. Um, you, You have put a lot of trust in us and the last thing we want to do is damage that trust by some sort of frustrating fee. You should never have that experience with an attorney who you're entrusting your company to. So we're giving you uh, full authority over our invoices, and here are the specific terms, they can line item veto any item on the invoice or just change any item on the invoice within 30 days of receiving that invoice. And one reason for that is we don't want a situation where somebody's going nine months later and wanting all of their money back. Business-wise, we can't do that. We don't think that's fair. If you have an issue with the invoice, raise it within 30 days, Um, we're giving that to the clients, but we're not going to run into a situation where we litigate for a year, and then because they lose at trial or don't get what they wanted, now they want all their litigation costs back.
1: Oh yeah, no, that sounds like a nightmare.
3: (laughs) Yeah, so we've thought through a lot of the potential problems here and the risks and really worked to minimize our risks, and in other words, the greatest risk we have is that the full invoice would be zeroed out, um, and then we would be able to decide, are we going to continue to work with that client?
1: Yeah, ultimately, if somebody just decides to screw you over on an invoice, then maybe it's just not the right fit.
3: <laughs> right. Now, I'll tell you, there are a lot of people who are against this. They're, they, it's very controversial, and one of the reasons is they attorneys feel like, hey, if I did it, I'd rather explain it, They can always come to me and I'll reduce the fee to keep them happy, but they should at least come to me. I don't want to make it too easy. I think that kind of defeats the purpose because a lot of clients aren't willing to come and debate that. Uh, they don't want to, it's a very awkward, uh, anxiety ridden conversation.
1: No, you're actually calling their bluff is what you're doing.
3: Right, right. And we want that feedback. We want to make it easy. It should be easy to be in a relationship with us. Mm -hmm. We often think of this relationship as like a dating or marriage. They need to be getting substantially out of the relationship over time. And if they're frustrated with something, we want to know immediately. It can't be the type of relationship where one side gets and the other side gives. Eventually, that's going to uh, deplete the bank
1: account. Well, yeah, and I suppose... um you know more than anything else what you've given them is the psychological um, out you you said you're gonna be happy and you're counting on them to be happy and um, I, I think for a lot of clients just the power that you've given them is all they really ever wanted the
3: number one concern I have heard from privately owned companies who hire business attorneys is the unreasonableness and unexpected nature of some legal fees. It just drives them crazy. They think they're going to pay one thing and they get a bill for another. Um, And they have told me, why can't you have some predictability in your legal fees? Uh, One, other options we implemented are fixed fees for a year, um, or fixed fees and success fees. Other things that would give some control and predictability over the costs. But we specifically apply this line item veto to our hourly fees. Uh, we oh, don't so this want, is
1: not for all of the fees?
3: We And I'll tell you, we're still in the evolution of right. this. We have offered it for everything, and nobody has responded. But we are a little concerned. Let's say we did a contingency case uh, to negotiate some deal or do a, um, a merger and acquisition. We're a little bit concerned that, hey, if we did what we said we were supposed to do and we're supposed to get a certain percentage, there's no reason that should be reduced.
1: Yeah, Uh, I I see that. That seems fraught with problems.
3: (laughs) Right, right. And because sometimes you get extraordinary results and that that results in great payoff for the attorneys. We don't want clients saying... Oh, you know what, we think your twenty five percent is a little high in light of the fact that it resulted in X amount of dollars. Which it
1: isn't. <laughs> I mean twenty-five percent right. you know, right. is almost never high. Um right. yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I totally get that. When you're I used to do contingent fees on a lot of stuff and when you're you're taking such a big risk yourself that that the whole point is that you might get a big payoff. So
3: Yeah, so I could see this working very well in adjacent areas. That would include other practices where you have long-term relationships with clients, trust them, you have similar core values, or perhaps CPAs and other right. professionals who have a long-term relationship like that.
1: So um, so how do you decide who to offer it to and, and how many of your clients are getting it right now?
3: I think we have it going out to about 15 clients right now, and those are clients uh, who we're doing work for every month. We decided let's try it out first with those clients, first who we trust. Uh, Second, we don't want to give it to clients where money is tight Mm -hmm. because we're concerned that they will find excuses psychologically because they would rather not pay their attorney and they'd rather pay some other bill. So we needed to make sure that they are solvent, successful, established companies. And then it's, it's clients where they're not... Um, unreasonably nickeling and diming every invoice. So you have that sense of mutual trust. You're both acting like adults. I do think we might roll it out more aggressively than just trusted clients in the future, but it's important that it be a long-term relationship and that uh, money not be an issue for them, that they are successful. Um, And then, frankly, some clients, we might just get immediate feedback where they're um, constantly cutting down the bill and then we say you know what this probably isn't a good client for us and we're <laughs> gonna have a good conversation with them we'll say you know I see that you docked our bill down 40 percent by the way this hasn't happened but if it does we'll just say what what about our bill did not seem like value to you what shouldn't we have done or why did you change it could you elaborate on that and if their answers are simply unreasonable in our minds that's a good indication it's not going to be a a good long-term relationship and so we'll say that in an amicable way and recommend some other attorney with a better approach for that client
1: but it sounds like this is theoretical right you've you haven't been trying it for have you sent out two invoices under the guarantee now
3: about yeah i can't remember exactly but right we've sent out invoices to all these clients and none of them has uh knocked down the bill at all Mm -hmm. now Other firms do this as well. A conduit up in Canada has done this. And they actually put on the invoice a spot to mark down the bill. They don't ask that it be line item vetoed. And they don't ask for feedback. Their idea is let's just make it really easy for clients. I've tended to think that feedback is helpful. uh, And we just have a logistical issue right now. It's hard to create two formats of invoices for all of our clients. We, we kind of need to stick with one template.
1: Oh right, and I, I mean my, the software that I've ever used to invoice isn't flexible enough to make it easy to add line items, vetoes anyway, so.
3: What we might do is put a, an insert, either a PDF or a sheet of paper in there that says, you know, this is a reminder of our commitment to you and aligning behind your legal goal or your business goals uh, and then explaining that veto again, that line item veto.
1: The, um, so what kind of results have you gotten? What kind of feedback have you gotten from the, uh, from the experiment?
3: Uh, two different types. Uniformly, clients have said, this is fantastic. We love it. It's this kind of stuff that makes us love working with your law firm. So they were very happy about it, even though they've never actually used it second referral sources they loved it because it eliminates one of the two major frustrations referral sources have when sending clients somewhere the first frustration is is the person an expert in their niche and the second is is the price in line with the client's budget and expectation and so they can check out our credentials and our reputation speaks for itself but then there's that cost issue and when referral sources know that their clients are never going to get hit with surprise fees that are um, that are commonplace unfortunately uh, in the legal profession then the referral sources feel a lot more comfort in sending clients our way
1: so um... this is whenever whenever somebody does something new uh, lawyers first want to know about the ethics because they figure um, ethics are a great way for them to get out of trying anything new. So I, I assume you guys have actually taken a pretty solid look at the ethical considerations here, but what are they? I mean, what, what can you do and what can't you do and what shouldn't you do when it comes to um, implementing a satisfaction guarantee?
3: Well, first off, there is nothing unethical about reducing your fee even down to zero. You can always do that. I'm not aware of any issue there. One ethical issue that was raised when I sent this out to a number of attorneys to get their feedback was we were calling it a satisfaction guarantee. And they were saying, now that title itself suggests that they will be satisfied and if they're and you are guaranteeing their satisfaction. Now, if you read down into what we're actually guaranteeing, it's that our fees would align with their expectations and we would be delivering value. Bottom line, though, is that that guarantee seemed to be a bit problematic, at least for some people. Uh, Some attorneys felt that you are guaranteeing a result, and that is unethical under the professional rules because attorneys don't know the future. You can't possibly guarantee a result. Our response to that was, no, we're guaranteeing that we're delivering value we're guaranteeing that they'll be satisfied with the with what we're working on. And if they're not, they don't have to pay for it. But still, there is a question out there about whether some, even the title alone gives a misconception to clients. So we are in the process of renaming this. Okay. And it might be something as simple as a statement, like you control your legal fees with a line item veto. And then we explain to them that, You deserve attorneys who align legal work with your goals and interests. You deserve to pay only for value, and you deserve detailed invoices. So to ensure you get what you deserve, we are giving you unilateral authority to reduce your invoices. And then we go into the details. It has to be done within 30 days of receiving the invoice. And uh, that there's no catch here, but we would ask that they explain why so that we can uh, become better and improve our services to them.
1: So you uh, you're, you would call that an being an excess of cautious, right? Exactly. I mean, I because it's there does seem to be a cl- pretty clear line to me between guaranteeing satisfaction and guaranteeing results. But I guess I can kind of see where the confusion comes from.
3: Yeah, and you know the other thing is too, we never want to seem salesy, uh, like we're using puffery. And satisfaction guarantee can rub some people the wrong way as a little bit salesy. So perhaps line item veto on your invoice is just more simpler and fact based. It's like this is what it is. We're not trying to push you or sell you on it.
1: Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. I t- I get that. Um, I guess satisfaction guaranteed sounds like uh, sort of medallions on the, on the box. In right, <laughs> right, right. Well,
3: and, and when we see those guarantees, we're like, well, what's the catch? Right. Um, and this is a profession of trust. The last thing we want people to do is get a, um, an initial impression of distrust or like they're being sold something.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I, you know, you mentioned this earlier and I, I meant to talk about it a little bit more, but, um, It sounds like one of the ways that you're controlling for risk here is in having more conversations with your clients upfront about fees, which is something that um, when I was doing an experiment with taking subscription fees, I I did that as well. I felt like when you do flat fees or subscription fees or most alternative fee arrangements, you end up having more conversations upfront about fees, which means that your client's expectations are usually in line with what is actually going to show up on their invoice.
3: That's a great point. And for larger firms, it ensures that every attorney is attentive to that issue. It's easy to get busy and just start knocking out bills, putting your time in there and moving on to the next thing because you're so busy and not necessarily thinking about how is the client going to receive this? So I agree, it is is very helpful and that now that communication point that is as you know one of the number one reasons that attorneys encounter ethical problems. That is, that they don't communicate enough with their client. They may be getting the work done and doing it right, but they're not communicating that to the client. We consider it a great failure if a client ever has to reach out and say, could you give me a status update on that? Far better is if we are beating them to that, saying, this is where we're at. And I'll I'll tell you, Slightly off topic, but another area we are focused on that's, I think, uh, unusual in our profession is setting a system in place for communicating with clients and actually having a written report that goes to them. You know, when you go to get your car worked on, uh, many of the great mechanics out there will give you a report at the end, and it says, this is what we did, and then perhaps this is, uh, is something we're working on right now, and then here are some items we recommend. When I was at a mechanic the other day, I thought, this is great, because my budget may not allow me to replace everything and fix everything on my car right now, but it's really nice to have a professional looking out for me, managing my car, and at least bringing those questions to my attention. I will then decide whether my dollars should be spent on those expenses.
1: So That's also either- kind of a classic CYA tactic, right, which is, I'm recommending that you do these things. And so if those things go wrong in the next six months or so, then it's kind of a, well, I told you so. <laughs>
3: right. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. From the client compliance and risk mitigation standpoint, I see attorneys could love that. Frankly, the clients love it because they say, you know what, we appreciate you're not pushing stuff on us, but also educating us about what's out there and what we might want to pay attention to when our budgets permit.
1: Yeah. Uh, and you know, so so it's really it's a two-sided thing. What you're doing with the invoice, if if that's all you did, it's a small buffer for the for a an objectionable fee. But what you really have to do, and, and what maybe is doing more good than even the invoice, is the front end work, which is telling clients what to expect once that invoice arrives in their mailbox. That's
3: a great point, and I'll tell you the impetus behind all of this was a strategic process we went through that uh, all of the listeners can go through. We found it extremely valuable. And the process was this. First, start out by identifying your ideal client. What characteristics do they have? Because let's face it, if you're trying to serve everybody, you're not going to be able to use an approach like this. You're not going to be able to use a monthly update. Uh, in fact, we have found that our, we, attorneys cannot even answer the phone if you're getting calls from both CEOs and personal injury clients and uh, divorce clients and uh, dog bite clients. You, we can't, or, or, by establishing a target market, it allows you to refine all the processes and the approach of your firm behind them to deliver extraordinary value that you simply can't if you are trying to serve everybody. So step one. Oh, go ahead. Well,
1: oh, I was just going to say, I mean, the ideal client exercise is just, I think it's absolutely essential. I don't know how you, can, how you can even begin marketing until you know who you're trying to market to. You
3: know, a lot of people say, well, we don't want to turn clients away. That was my biggest fear. I made a big mistake starting out saying we are a full-service law firm. What I found, though, is that Nobody wants to refer to a jack-of-all-trades expert at none. Right. And when a friend of mine, a local immigration attorney who had referred me a lot of work, she called me one day and said, "Aaron, I need a good business attorney. Do you know of anybody? I said, Sandra, that's 95% of what I do. And she said, oh, I thought you were general interest. I thought you were full service. I realized I was leaving money on the table by not declaring a focus. And... I was really concerned about losing that 5% of the business. What happened, though, is when we focused on that target client and picked a practice niche, we still kept all that that 5% of the business because they were there because of the relationship. They weren't there because they thought we were somehow experts at whatever area. So step one that we went through and I think is great value for listeners is identify your identity your ideal client, and then second, visualize that client. Put skin on them. Pick a gender. Give them a name. Give them an age. What do they spend time doing? What concerns are on their minds? Where do they go? What activities are they involved in? And then list the factors that they, this is step three, would consider in hiring you. What's important to them? Price might be there. Speed might be there. Quality of work might be there. Uh, But Do they hear about you on the radio all the time? Uh, For example, if you are doing a divorce practice, you might find it's good to be on a talk radio station and maybe pick a male or female station, depending on who you're catering to. Um, Or, in fact, business owners often listen to talk radio on sports or politics, and they're driving around doing stuff during the day. The point is to get into their head and think, where are they, what is their world? Where are they living? Where are they interacting? And then step four is to honestly rate yourself on those factors. So if a client is, cares a lot about communications, rate yourself. This goes back to what you were talking about with communications. We found that we are just average in communicating with clients. And yet, that is very important for our clients. That's a common cause of frustration where they don't know what's going on. And so, in light of the fact that our clients care deeply about frequent communications, and that is also a sign that we are competently managing their business affairs, we're putting a lot of mental energy into thinking about how can we create a system for our ideal clients that communicates frequently to them. And that was how we ended up getting to that uh, mechanic scenario where the auto mechanic is giving you a little report. So the point here is when you go through this exercise yourself, in your practice area, you might come up with other ideas. Um, One attorney I know, he's criminal defense, I asked him, where do you get most of your referrals? And he said, well, I thought about who's my target market. And it's, those who drink and drive. And he said, well, who? what are their lives? Who are they interacting with immediately after they are stopped for drinking and driving? He realized it's a tow truck driver. The tow truck driver is there to take away his, his vehicle. Well, a friend of his was a tow truck driver, so he gave him some business cards and said, hey, will you keep me in mind? His friend, the tow truck driver, whenever he went to pick up a vehicle at a DWI, said, don't talk to the cops. Here's a card for my friend. He's a criminal att- defense attorney. Talk to him first.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And so
3: it's getting into the world of your target market, mm-hmm. thinking about who are they interacting with and how can you get your message right to them at the point when they need it? What well, message resonates?
1: I And I guess that just clarifies that the importance of uh, not just doing things because they're new or somebody recommends it. I mean you know, I think social media still has plenty of hype surrounding it. And that's great if your target market spends a lot of time on Facebook and for some strange reason is interested in learning about lawyers while they're looking at pictures of their friends' kids. Um, But there's a really good chance that your target demographic is in a different place um, and you can reach them better in a different place. Or maybe even if Facebook is an effective place for you to reach them it's probably not by posting pictures of the lawyers in your firm or something like that. So I, I think it just sort of it, it clarifies everything that you do to reach out to people and obviously the relationships that you have with them after they come on board. So
3: that raises an interesting point. This line item veto idea is certainly not good for everybody. Um, well, and you can't
1: use it for marketing, right? Because you're not offering it to everybody.
3: Right, not yet at least, and we might in the future when we have eliminated all clients that are not ideal and we have just a great core group of established relationships, I'm excited about that day because we will be able to adapt all of our systems just for one group. But so people might be thinking, well, this is an innovative idea, but it has nothing to do with my practice. I think about uh, a comment by Henry Ford, at least that's attributed to him, regarding innovation. Uh, they were asking him, how did you identify innovative ideas for your for, for your clients? And he said, if I had asked my clients, what do they want? They would have said faster horses. And if he, he of course, didn't do that, he created the automobile, or at least... Uh, grew that industry. The point is you can't always ask your clients what do you want? Uh, if I, especially if what they want doesn't exist yet because they don't know the value, they haven't appreciated it. Um, so what we really focus on is trying to understand what is the world of our client? What are they living in? And as you touched on, it might not be Facebook. Um, if they are not in your demographic or financial situation, They may not have uh, access to the things you have access to. They may not be living in the world you live in. Um, But by focusing on understanding them better and their lives, you can think about how can we provide more value to our clients. And that, I believe, is one valuable way to find innovation in your practice.
1: So uh, so let me deliver a small buzzkill before we end, which is that FYI, uh, that's not actually a Henry Ford quote. Um, it it is a great quote. Um, it's one of those urban legends. Yeah. it's, It's like that. Um, it's like the, uh, the other great quote about the future, which is, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed, uh-huh. um, which William Gibson, the, the cyberpunk novelist, gets credit for. Uh, he didn't say it. It totally annoys him that everybody attributes it to him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Henry K- Ford cares, but uh, great quote, just not him. Um, no, it's
3: interesting, too. Uh, <laughs> Steve Jobs went with Apple didn't try to say, I'm going to try to create a faster computer with more specs more technical ability. He said, no, I'm going to think about my clients and what world do they live in and let's start with them, not just ex- turning the degree or moving down the spectrum a little bit. I ask a lot of attorneys, what, do they, what makes them different? And they answer with a, uh, with a point about being a little bit better, an incremental difference. We're a little bit, we respond a little faster to our clients. We're, we believe we're better quality. We believe we're higher touch. We're all about relationships. Blah, blah, blah. Every single one says that. And clients want to know, really, how are you different? And when we can answer those in a succinct succinct way, like Steve Jobs did, creating something wholly different in a commoditized industry, I believe will provide a lot more value to clients and we'll find a lot more clients.
1: So how do you answer that question for your firm?
3: For our firm, it is uh, four things creating an ecosystem around business owners, so that's tools, events, introducing them to each other, allowing them to live in a world that helps them not feel like they're a asylum. So that's one. Number two, making sure that we're not just doing the legal work on their business, we're helping grow their company. For example, with most business owners, they'll walk in and say, I would like a trademark registration. And the attorney naturally will say, great, the issue here is trademark registration, the rule, I'm going through IRAC here, the rule is all right. here's the law, it's gonna take this much time, it's gonna be this cost, let's analyze the legal issues and then they conclude. We don't take that approach. We say, well tell us more about your business, what's happening that has prompted you to want to register this trademark? Do you have new brands going on? What are your competitors doing? What's happening in the marketplace? What are your big opportunities this year? In doing that, not only do we provide better work on the trademark registration, but we can actually be a trusted advisor or a strategic partner with business owners, helping them in every area of their business, not just do the legal technical stuff, but help them accomplish their goals. So, and I won't go through all four distinctions, but those are a couple of the key ones that we have focused on. Um, And I believe that the more we get into understanding our clients, the more we can focus on innovations that deliver value to them.
1: It sounds like, if I can tie that up on a, in a bow, it sounds like uh, you, what you're trying to do is respond to the futurists by saying that um, you know we don't need to start programming uh, artificial intelligence to solve all of our legal problems. We still think personal services are the best approach, but we're gonna, in the same way that say Apple took took the PC to a whole different level, we think we can uh, refine law practice to a whole different level so that you're willing to pay the premium price instead of cutting the rates and delivering an inferior product.
3: You raise an interesting point about price, and by the way, that is exactly correct. We've recognized that there are attorneys solos in the suburbs who will charge 150 or 250 per hour. We charge on average 350 per hour, and the big firms are substantially higher than that. So a client has to, thinks to themselves why would I want to pay $350 an hour when I could pay 150 or $250? There, you have to have a great answer for that, and that answer needs to be part of every marketing message that you have because if you're not answering that, they're going to go for the cheapest option and you're commoditizing your, your industry when you're not different. How are you different? For us, one other answer is we provide a team, not just a generalist but an employment attorney, an intellectual property attorney, a real estate attorney, people who live in those worlds for the most common legal areas you need. When you believe a jack-of-all-trades isn't enough for you, then you can graduate up to a, a, a firm of our type. You're not going to pay the high rates of the big firms downtown or in New York, so we're hitting that midpoint. We've identified, kind of like Target, a good price point to deliver good value. We're not Walmart. We're not Nordstrom.
1: Mm-hmm. And you're, and you're suiting your services to the clients that you're exactly. that you're trying to get so right so a lot of business
3: thought goes into this and as you can tell, we really think that business principles and free market principles will help drive attorneys to deliver more value and more satisfaction to clients. It's not about marketing and puffery. It's about delivering real value. and too, for too long our profession has said, no, it's a profession. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to communicate that. We believe that's the wrong approach. We should really try to get into the minds of our clients and figure out what is true value to them and make sure we're constantly focused on delivering that.
1: Well, Aaron Hall, thank you so much for being with us today. I think that's a good uh, good thing to end on, and um, I hope we'll have you back sometime. It was a
3: pleasure, Sam. Thank you very much.
1: This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing when I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings, it's an interruption. Kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me the way that happens is it's a soft transfer meaning the first person i hear from is a receptionist from ruby who says hi this is so and so from ruby receptionists i've got so and so on the phone and they're calling about this should i put him through and so i have the opportunity to say no tell them to call this person tell them i'll call them back later please take a message or sure put them through and i'll talk to them And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So... You should check out Ruby, and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days, and if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you, and I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself
0: catch us next week for episode nine when we talk with fashion lawyer Allie Grace Marquart, who recently made Forbes 2015 30 under 30 list for law and policy.
1: To make sure you catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast, subscribe to the Lawyerist podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyers.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.